Cell TX-71 concealable mic is part of the same system that NASA used when they faked the Apollo moon landings. Worked for them. Shouldn't give us too many problems. They break and enter. How are we doing? Cause and position on the fire escape. Mother's in the cable vault. Preparing to sever master circuit. But they're not thieves. We're getting too old for this. They know your secrets. But they're not spies. Gotta be there somewhere. What's he doing? Hey, Lena, really? Mr. Bishop, do you mind if I take a look? Carl. Grow up. I give you something to work, baby. So people hire you to break into their places to make sure no one can break into their places? What's the living? Not a very good one. Now, they've got a new client. National Security Agency. I don't work for the government. Relax, Marty. It's just everybody on your team has had some sort of problem in their past. Now, what are you saying? The NSA killed Kennedy? No, they shot him, but they didn't kill him. He's still alive. They may not want the job. Liz, I need your help. I will not be dragged back into your world. But they don't have a choice. We don't want to bust you. We want to hire you. We're the good guys, Marty. Can't tell you what a relief that is, Dick. Well, your job is to find that little black box. Got it. It's not about who's got the most bullets. It's about who controls the information. Anybody want to shut down the Federal Reserve? Hey, don't wait, screw wait, around wait. with that thing. It's all about the information. So it's a code breaker. No, it's the code breaker. Battle stations. Do you have the item? Can you guarantee my safety? Where is the item? Can you guarantee my safety? Martin, you've got trouble. Here, maybe this might help. Old buddy of mine who was in Desert Storm sent it to me. Of course, he was on the other side. Now give me the bomb, Martin! I'm an excellent marksman, woman. I'm Carl. Get the fire escape at the end of the North Corridor. Go directly north, directly north, about 30 yards. Five seconds. Hang up, Fish! Hang up, they've almost got us! Welcome to the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. I am your host, Scott White. I am joined once again by my arch nemesis. Introduce yourself, sir. My name is Tim Howard, and I am uh, currently in an undisclosed location in the Pacific Northwest, uh, thanks to the uh, Witness Protection Program. Uh, Hats off to the FBI. Uh, Thanks for the new identity and everything, so really appreciate that. I understand there's a risk involved here, but you know, I will need to take the risk. That's why he agreed to be on this podcast, because nobody listens to it. Uh, so yeah. he's pretty, <laughs> you're pretty safe. The late, great Sidney Poitier uh, passed away. The re- we're recording this f- about a week ago, or maybe not so much, but. Yeah, it was right at, it was, uh, I believe, that when they announced it like a week ago. So he probably died uh, last week, right, you know. Yeah, we're recording this in uh, just about the middle of January. Tim got a hold of me and said he would like to do Sneakers, since Dan Aykroyd and Sidney Poitier are both in that movie. Now, I have already did a podcast on Sneakers, but it was one of my first ones. When I first started off, I was a little raw. So I thought, yeah, let's do. So we're going to do a redid overdue. And we're going to do Sneakers again, this time with, uh, with my friend here, Tim. We're just going to reboot the uh, 
sneakers podcast. We're doing it. And I, at, so <laughs> you said you owned this on Laserdisc? Yeah, actually, um, there was, you know, before Blockbuster, there used to be these little mom and pop video stores. And I lived out there in Klein, northwest of Houston. And there was this uh, mom and pop video store that was going out of business. And uh, because it was a relatively affluent area, they actually rented laser discs out. Well, the store was closing, so they were selling the laser discs. And um, one of the laser discs was uh, sneakers, and I had never seen the movie before. So I bought it sight unseen just because I looked at who was in it. You know, and it's like, how could a movie with Robert Redford and Dan Aykroyd and Ben Kingsley and Sidney Portier and River Phoenix be a bad movie? Right. I mean, you, you think about it. It's like, I, now I understand it's happened. You've had great casts that have put out terrible movies before. But, you know, I, I looked at that going, oh, you know, holy cow, this has got to be a, a decent movie. Somehow I missed it uh, when it was in the theaters. So I got it. Now, for those folks that aren't familiar with it, a laser disc is what came uh, after VHS and before DVD. And everybody thought it was going to be the new format. I don't want to get too far sideways into that. But the laser disc was about the size of your old, you know, vinyl LP record. And it was cool because it was, you know, digitized. It was the first truly digitized uh, format that you could get for your television and the picture was outstanding and you could do pause on anything. The stuff that we're able to do with our phones today on a regular basis. Uh, and so I, I actually have a, a pretty decent laser disc collection. I joined the Columbia laser disc club. There, was, <laughs> there really was such a thing. And so I got like speed, all the star Wars movies with the original editing that George Lucas won't go back and put out again, he said, until after he's dead. But anyway, so it was, so I bought it sight unseen. And as it turns out, uh, it's one of my favorite movies. I, I really like it, uh, not only because of the cast, but also it, it's a little ahead of its time because uh, here's a movie that's made back in the 1990s, 1992 specifically when most people still did not have a PC in their home, let alone have one in their pocket. Right. And it's about hacking and, and these hackers. And uh, so the plot starts off that Robert Redford owns his company. Sidney Portier is his uh, partner. And uh, the, I, presumably, I don't know what the employee relationship is with everybody else. But uh, in any case, their job is to try to hack into banks to try to steal money out of bank accounts. And then they uh, do it and then go to the bankers and then explain to them how their banking systems are vulnerable and are then paid for having done that. And so it's uh, extremely labor intensive and they let you know early on. The remuneration for it is not outstanding that there's a scene where uh, Robert Redford is getting a check from the bank, from the teller, uh, where he's getting paid for his having hacked into the bank system. 
And she says, well, you know, that sounds like a hell of a way to make a living kind of thing. And he says, yeah, it's a living. And she goes, well, apparently not much. And Robert Redford yeah. looks at her like, you know, whatever. Well, yeah, I remember that scene. It's like you work at a bank. How how much more money are you making? It's He's doing something cutting edge and interesting. And you're working at a bank. So, you know, don't comment on what other people are making. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's just it. You know, that's like, uh, you, you know, you, you can uh, look nice and uh, go to the bank and you can count to 10. And uh, you're putting down somebody who's hacking into computer systems and supposedly stealing tons of money. Now, a little bit of a background. They do have a flashback. How, In, in fact, I believe the movie begins with... Uh, the, big, the movie starts in December of 1969. Right. And uh, Ben Kingsley's character and Robert Redford's character are both in college. And they've hacked into Richard Nixon's personal checking account. And they're taking money out of Nixon's account and giving it to groups like uh, a group that wants to legalize marijuana uh, kind of a thing. And then also gave it to the uh, Black Panthers. Yeah, gave them to right. the Black gave, Panthers. Gave to groups that uh, Nixon would have definitely considered to be enemies of the state so much so that he pissed himself in Watergate to try to get to these guys. But in any case, this isn't a big deal, but it's just sort of comical to me. Yes. So the, the, the movie starts off where Robert Redford and Ben Kingsley, their characters in college, college age students, 24, 25, right around there. Maybe, maybe probably a little younger, uh, Eddie, right around the, and this movie takes place about 20 years in the few, you know, uh, the movie takes place 20 years after that. Yeah. So we're led to believe in the movie that Ben Kingsley and Robert Redford are in their mid 40s, which I'm sorry, I just can't <laughs> believe I, 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 they can't pull that off. <laughs> That's an excellent point. I hadn't quite thought of that. And it's obvious they're beyond that. There's even a scene that I was referring to where um, Redford has to meet with two thugs both of whom are accomplished actors in other movies and series, uh, actually. And Sidney Portier and Redford apparently have a signal when there's trouble. And so Redford's meeting with these two guys, and then they find out that these two guys are, like, there to kill him. And so Sidney Portier, like, yells out at Rob Redford, you have a call, something like that. And Redford's like, I'm busy. And then Portier says... It's your mother. And that was apparently the sign that uh, there's trouble and you need to come here right away. And the two guys look at the, at Redford like, your mother would still be alive? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he just kind of looks at him and understands the glance and he says, well, uh, she's old. So, so yeah, that's a, that's a good point that you made because even in the movie, they acknowledge the fact that Geez, you know, Robert Redford's mom's still alive? Holy cow. You know? So, uh, anyway, um, but but they were, like, both these hackers getting into Nixon's account. Redford gets away, and Kingsley spends years and years and years in prison and has decided 
that he wants to bring down the system uh, and that has and and he's he hasn't come up with well in the movie and it's almost on the verge of science fiction in them because in science fiction there's always like an invention whether it's warp drive whether it's and i don't know if i consider star wars science fiction per se but there's always an invention and in this case a professor who is like really suave really cool really good looking it so much so that i thought oh my god you know i have a twin <laughs> anyway he's come up with this computer program that can hack any system in the world that it can overcome any firewall on any computer anywhere and he even you know robert redford goes to this lecture rather reluctantly where the the professor talks about you know how mathematics has led to the point now where you there where it's possible to develop an algorithm which can simultaneously basically try all of these different combinations and again overcome uh, any firewalls and stuff and so what happens is uh, kingsley and redford are both after this a uh, little invention it turns out the professor dies uh in the process and so they're both after this thing and redford and his folks uh like river phoenix and uh city potier and uh, dan Aykroyd and the the blind guy who i don't know the actor's name who played the blind guy he was awesome it's also been in lots uh, of stuff david david strathen yeah. lots yeah. of stuff lots of stuff uh that he was in anyway they actually hook it up and they find out that they can now shut down the national power grid if they want to they could crash airliners if they want to and so they come there's this uh, awesome moment of the movie where you know they're like no let's unhook let's shut this down right away like this is like way too much power this cannot stand you know nobody should be able to you know in the hands of the wrong person this could wreck complete havoc across the globe and as it turns out ben kingsley robert redford's old college buddy who has a grudge from being in prison both against redford and against society in general ben kingsley is the wrong guy and so much of, of it's about trying to get i forget how they they uh get a hold of it but at one point ben kingsley has it robert redford has it you know keeps going back and forth go ahead yeah the gist of the movie is ben kingsley unbeknownst to us hires robert redford to steal this black box which can which That's we find right. out that that can you know break any encryption and redford doesn't know it's him redford doesn't know it's him and the reason they get Redford to do it is, so Redford's been in hiding since 69. He has right. a new identity. And so Ben Kingsley basically sends these guys who are, at, who are pretending to be the government. And they say, you do this for us. We'll wipe your record clean. You don't have to run anymore. That's right. And, and we'll give you $175,000, which honestly D dividing it, what, one, two, uh, three, four, 
So they're dividing $175,000 between five people. Even in 1992, that's not a ton of money. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it'll get them by for a year, maybe they could live on it. I remember at the time, specifically, I was making about thirty-two to 35000 a year as a uh, professor. So 175000 isn't exactly... You know, you're you're not gonna all go off and live your best lives, you know, right. on that kind of money, even in nineteen ninety-two. They agree to do the job. So the thing about Redford is, and we've seen this before in movies, his team is all either ex-cons or people who yeah, like Sidney Poitier is not an ex-con, he was ex FBI, but he was fired for insubordination. I, was and he ex FBI or ex CIA? <sighs> I believe it was CIA because Dan Aykroyd kept talking about all these conspiracy theories because Dan Aykroyd right. is the conspiracy theorist guy. And at, there's a scene where Poitier gets to kick some ass and he says, you know, you know why I was kicked out of the CIA? I'm pretty sure it was CIA. But anyway, it doesn't really matter all that much. Sorry. But yeah, they're all like rogues. They're all rogues. They're all rogues. And they're all and, operating kind of on the edge of society, quasi-illegal stuff, and they probably have people looking for them. And they're all slightly off, especially Ackroyd and uh, River Phoenix. Yes. There's, it's, you know, they're, Ackroyd plays this conspiracy theorist, which proves to me that that's how he is in real life, but it also proves to me that Dan Aykroyd has a sense of humor about this as well. He doesn't mind making fun of himself for believing in this. It's like, this is what I believe, and if you're going to make fun of me, I'll, I'll just go with the flow. We're up. What's with the lobby? Still just the one guard. Okay, mother, try the ones coming off the blue trunk. Try the ones coming off the white trunk, Mother. These don't sound right. Oh, no. We've even got photos of the guy leaving the embassy through the back service entrance. Hey, Crease, you on? Yeah, I'm on. Were you still in CIA in 72? Yeah, why? Did you know the deputy director of planning was down in Managua, Nicaragua the day before the earthquake? Now what are you saying? The CIA caused the Monagua earthquake? Well, I can't prove it, but... I can't talk to that guy. And River Phoenix just plays this... He's only 19 in the movie. I don't know if that how close that was to his real age at the time. But he just plays this awkward adolescent in, yeah. in the movie. Yeah, the young, smart hacker type, which we've seen that trope repeated... It's ubiquitous now. You, you, there's all sorts of people that are both young and fantastic hackers. Yes. You know, it's, it, it's never, in the movies, it's never like, you know, and I'm not saying this complaining as an old man or nothing. I'm just saying that wouldn't a hacker who's going to be very successful most likely going to be a guy who was, who was well, like a, a Redford or Kingsley, who were computer majors in the 60s, and they've been there for the whole thing. And they understand all the coding that goes on behind all of this. And they know Fortran. And they know all of these things. And they've been there since the beginning. So that by the time they're 60, 70 years old, they have accumulated enough knowledge 
to be these fantastic hackers. But in Hollywood, it's just a talent. You just wake up one day and you're 19 years old. And because you're 19, you're smart and tech savvy and you're able to hack into the Pentagon. You know, it's definitely it's- not an accumulative process anymore. Hacking. <laughs> yeah. No, no, understood. I'm just the way Hollywood portrays it. It's like, well, you know, it's just like being able to hit a baseball. You know, either you can or you can't, kind of thing. You're either Ted Williams or you're not Ted Williams. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I, I'm sorry to bring up baseball, by the way, with you wearing the uh, Tigers hat. I'm sorry about that. That was, uh, you know, that was not a direct shot. No, I, uh, I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. I, I should have said you're either Al K line or you're not Al K line. <laughs> <laughs> You're Mark. No, and River Phoenix is more like Mark Fidrich. In fact, oh. now segue into how all of the characters are like members of the Detroit Tigers over the years, <laughs> and uh, you know, go from there. But uh, well, let's not let's not lose any more listeners at this point. Understood. Understood. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You know, we want to try to keep them as awake as possible and uh, get them to check out Sneakers, which is available on HBO Max uh, to check it out. I think one of the, now it was not a big box office hit. No, it was not. I, because I think like the movie Tron that came out about a decade before, these are two movies that you would never link together, right? But here it goes. These movies were way ahead of their time as far as computers and everything. You know, people back when Tron came out didn't understand what terms like user meant, you know, and and various references to computer hardware that's all throughout the movie. And I kind of think the same thing with sneakers, because sneakers are saying that, look, we're about to head into a future where hacking is going to become kind of a way of life thing. And it's going to start Either doing it or either doing it or preventing it or trying to prevent it. Right. Like, right. Exactly. Which is what Redford is here. You know, Redford's and it's kind of like the good hacker, anti-hacker thing. Redford and his crew are good hackers and Kingsley uh, is a bad hacker. And (laughs) right. Once they, the Kingsley eventually, like I said, Redford gets the chip. Then they find out to their horror that the professor who was modeled after me has been killed. And uh, they find out that they weren't getting this for the government. They got it for Ben Kingsley. And then on top of that, as the kicker, you know, as the whipped cream and cherry on top of betrayal, Kingsley presses a button. And now the FBI is alerted to Redford's uh, new identity. And uh, now he's back on the FBI, like, top 10 watch list from 25 years ago kind of a thing. Although, you think about it, hacking into Nixon's, you know, checking account back in the 1960s doesn't really, it doesn't quite seem to me to be up there with, like, serial killer or, you know, serial terrorist bomber kind of thing. But, okay. You know, they, so they, so now Redford is completely screwed. Uh, because just like Peter Parker, his identity is known to ever to well, at least to the people that care about what his identity is. And so they've got to go underground and they've got to try to get that chip out of Ben Kingsley's hands. Yes. Usually in my podcast, we go through the movie from start to finish, but I did that on the last podcast. So I like yeah. what we're doing here. We're just giving overall chunks. 
this movie would be very hard to go from scene to scene because there are just a lot of really many scenes in this movie between all right. the characters. And also, that would require us to actually be like organized and present information in a logical right. fashion. <laughs> We're not going to do that. This is like the Pulp Fiction version of a podcast of a movie. That uh, and and I I'm not because. A lot of people haven't seen the movie. I, I'm not going to give away the ending, but it has a very satisfying ending, uh, for me at least. Uh, and not to get too far off into the political, but but here's something that Hollywood usually doesn't do, although they did it in Jurassic Park too, is Kingsley is talking about bringing down the system in much the similar way that Tyler Durden, Tyler Durden is talking about taking down the system in Fight Club, except that Tyler Durden's taking it down with literally explosives blowing up bank headquarters just a couple of years before 9-11. Kingsley's talking about bringing down the system and all these institutions and wiping out everybody's debts using computer software. Well, or in this case, a piece of hardware software combination that will bring down all of the banks and the system. And finally, Kingsley's goal is like true equality. Everybody is about to be equal. Money is about to become worthless. Nobody will know who owes who, how much money anymore. And so it's gonna be everything that um, Robert Redford's character and Ben Kingsley's character talked about doing in college. So to get back to the original point here, is that's a very liberal, very sort of socialist outlook kind of a thing. And Ben Kingsley is the sort of liberal, progressive, so socialist, I'm going on the continuum there, bad guy. But it's he, also, you know, it's also a kind of naive point of view as well. Like if we... If we wiped out everybody's debt, everybody would be the same. That's sort of naive thinking. Of course it is. Of course it is. And and Redford and them recognize that. Plus, in the meantime, I mean, nothing works anymore. The ability to get medicine to hospitals, the ability to, you know, get the traffic lights to move traffic around and everything. It, it would be basically not so much an equalization as much as it would be a collapse of civilization itself. You know, and tons and tons of people would have to die in order to get to this end kind of a thing. And and Redford and his folks uh, kind of see that. What is it that you're drinking? That looks awfully good. I'm, I am drinking Mountain oh, Dew. I see flaming hot. I'm sorry. I just saw the I just saw the color of it. That 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 color. There's a drink in Star Trek Nine that <laughs> looks so good that I came down to the. Uh, our soda fountain and tried to actually make it and it looked just like <laughs> it was delicious but in any case just something that kind of was like grapefruit and pineapple and stuff thrown together so i i didn't see it was a can i thought it was just a, a glass of, of a drink but in any case I, I think at the time you know had that movie come out in 1999 like fight club or if it come out in 2002 then I think it would have been a much larger hit because it was about hacking. But there were other computer hacking movies from around this same time as well. It's not the first one. Uh, War Games, for example, 
Yeah. In this case, talks about somebody being able to use software to get into the nuclear launch codes and to actually be able to launch a nuclear missile anywhere they want to launch it. Superman 3 with Richard Pryor. Yes. That's <laughs> Richard that's Pryor a computer hack. That's a computer hacking movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, of all things. So there yeah. are other themes like this, but the idea that, you know, people with an agenda and not just people like, you know, the recent permutations of the, of the Joker who is just looking to cause chaos, people with malevolent, you know, intent are going to be a problem. <laughs> and everybody, institutions everywhere, all, all the way down to the little McAfee thing on your computer and mine are going to have to have anti-hacking software and stuff. And mm -hmm. th this is going to be, uh, they, they don't sell it as a glimpse of the future, so to speak, in like a Blade Runner kind of way. But, but that you look back on it now and you see that, well, that's exactly what's been going on. I mean, there was a couple of years ago, we think it was maybe the Russians or the North Koreans, but somebody came in and shut down part of the power grid, you know, and there's been several successful attacks. There was an attack against Sony, which we think was North Korea because they came out with a movie that made fun of Kim Jong-un. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it wasn't even a great movie, but uh, nonetheless, Kim Jong-un decided to go after Sony because Sony Pictures had released something critical of himself. And... Um, uh, and so it is an ongoing uh, battle, even, and I mean, the Persian Gulf War, which was just a couple years before this, we, you know, allowed the Iraqis under Saddam Hussein to steal a computer printer. And uh, the printer got hooked up to some computer and put a bug in it so their anti-aircraft guns wouldn't work anymore. So for those of us old enough to remember the Persian Gulf War and the videos coming from Baghdad as it was being bombed by the United States, the guns were just firing randomly into the air because they couldn't aim kind of a thing. And so that had just happened two years prior to this. So there were some folks who saw, you know, what was going to begin to happen. And again, and apparently Redford, Redford likes to make movies that he thinks are kind of important. Uh, yeah. kind of a thing, you know, that, that says a lot about, you know, our system one way or the other, three days of the Condor uh, kind of a thing. Brubaker about prison reform. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And not so much barefoot in the park, which is no, great. no, but, you know, he, he likes to make movies that are or, or about a dying lifestyle or uh, movies that have a message. Uh, so to speak, you know, like Jeremiah Johnson, you know, about a lifestyle that's about to disappear from the Old West, yeah, you know, kind of a thing. That once Redford made Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, he becomes obsessed with the West and basically he goes to Utah and never quite comes home. Um, and maybe that was when Hydra recruited him. I mean, I don't know. But uh, uh, in any case, Robert Redford used to play the good guy. And uh, <laughs> yeah. And so he's uh, he's still the good guy here, and he yes he's he's our he's our flawed good guy, which are the best now, kind of good guys. Let's talk a little bit more about Sidney Portier because, like Redford, Portier also made important movies. 
movies with a message. Movies that tried to hit home at some of the issues that were hitting us. And here he is in this movie, which is essentially, I don't know, comedy, adventure kind of a thing, because there's a lot of humor in this. Uh, yes. That one of the things that has to be emphasized here is that this is a funny movie. It is very it's, entertaining. It's very entertaining. A lot of the humor, it's dry, dry humor, which sure. I enjoy. Yeah, it's not slapstick, the kind of stuff that Rob Mungle would like, you know. We get but, a couple of slapsticky scenes with Rare Phoenix throw, falling through the ceiling. But for the most part, right. to me, this is a smart movie for dumb people. Because yeah. I'm, a, I'm not a very intelligent person. But I was able to follow this movie. So this is a smart movie for dumb people. It's ha- It's got a smart premise. It's got smart writing. It's got great characters. And I was able to follow it. I knew what was going on every, at all points in the movie. Oh, yeah, See, the so- exposition of it. The exposition of it is really outstanding because, like you said, you know, you could be a, a 10 or 12-year-old kid, you know, back in 1992 – and you can still follow along with the idea here is that here's a little black box, you know, that you can hook up to your computer and it will allow you to hack any computer in the world. Fish, I think you better come over here. Carl, you got your little black book? Yes. Give me the number for something impossible to access. Okay. What about this Federal Reserve Transfer Node Culpeper, Virginia? Got your good luck. 900 billion a day goes through there. That'll do. Punch it in. Okay. You won't get in. It's encrypted. See? Mother, that last contact. Shut down the Federal Reserve? Hmm. Hey, 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 don't wait, screw wait, around wait, with that thing. Carl, what else you got? National Power Grid. <laughs> okay. There we come. actually work we don't care do we care how warp drive works no we We don't don't care care how transporters work and just to go off on another tangent that was one of the main criticisms about ghostbusters 2016 is they put so much time into explaining how the proton pack work and they put so much so much time in explaining how the ghost traps work we don't care we just the, the proton pack works because it, it's nuclear and yeah, it just does. So it, it just does. Suspension of disbelief. Just as how did this a moment? It does these things. How did this? How did this blast black box come into being that can hack anything? Don't and care. It, yeah, we don't care. Some smart computer guy who was a mathematician came up with it, and now he's dead. So he doesn't even have to try to explain it to anybody. 
No, nope. <laughs> you know, it's just it just it's it covered just, in one line. It looks like so and so discovered how to do it. Boom. Yeah, that was it. Ooh, That's there you go. It's like that line from Joe Dirt. How does a positive traction work on a '68 Firebird? Nobody knows. It just does. <laughs> yeah. God damn. <laughs> we've, we've we've quoted Joe Dirt and Jeremiah Jones in the same podcast. <laughs> Jeremiah Johnson. Jeremiah Johnson. Yeah. We we run the gamut. Well, like I said. Yes. Now, one of the All scary right. things I did want to bring up in the context of this and hacking and everything is that my understanding of how the computer hardware currently works is that, you know, it it runs an algorithm and then it runs another one and then it runs another one. Now it's running them at incredibly fast speeds and speed of light kind of a thing. But it's still doing one calculation at a time sequentially. And if you got two processors or four processors, then it's doing four calculations at the same time, or six or eight or 16. Well, they've now actually gotten biologically based DNA living computers to start to work, to actually perform a couple of basic functions for reasons that are beyond my understanding and, and, and yours and, and everybody listening to this, even, even Robin Weinberg. Once the biological computer chip thing or computer is perfected, it won't just run one calculation, then another, then another, then another. It'll run them all simultaneously. And so, for example, it's like, okay, here's another 1992 a uh, slight computer hacking thing, Terminator 2, where John Connor hacks into the ATMs and then it goes through until it figures out what the key code is to get money out of somebody's stolen account. Well, you know, the computer is going through there and it's trying all the different passwords one at a time until it finds the right one. With these new biological computers, which should be coming online in the next 10 years or so, I guess, not for people, but for national security institutions, stuff like that. It could do like a trillion all at once, which just blows your mind. And so potentially nothing would ever be safe again, you know, kind of thing that you would literally press a button and it would boom, you know, the cash opens up and the money starts coming out kind of a thing. Although that is perhaps the most pettiest little use of some something like that. And so maybe we're going to start to see uh, some of that stuff coming up. It'll make the, the matrix, you know, look like an abacus. Uh, back to the uh, city 48. Yes. Some of the best scenes in the movie are between city 48 and dead Aykroyd. Yes, they because are. City 48 plays city 40 yeah, plays XCIA and dead Aykroyd is a conspiracy theorist. So right. he keeps throwing out stuff like uh, uh, faking the moon, the moon landing. landing, cattle mutilation, and it just seems to get under uh, uh, City Point. It's like, I'm not, I'm done. I'm not talking to you. Yeah, I'm done. Yeah. It's just, Here's the point where it's obvious that he that any reasoning or rationale isn't going to work with Dan Aykroyd. So he's just going to like, you just shut up. You just quit talking. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. Yeah, it's it's really it's very funny because um, I mean Potier was in comedies, but he wasn't exactly you know delivering punchlines and look who's coming to dinner, mm-hmm. you know, 
And, and here he was. I, it's not so much a punchline, though, so much as he is playing a comic role. And so it's, you know, they must have seen something beyond that when they looked at the script and decided, oh, yeah, we're going to get Robert Redford and Sidney Poitier. Because you think these two guys are going to be in a movie. It's going to be about, you know, civil rights or the arc of history kind of a thing and uh, a giant commentary on, well, like you said, Brubaker with prison reform or, yeah, you know, lifestyles. And I, I mean, even even Butch Cassidy, excuse me, the Sundance Kid were about, you know, you, you know, they, they were coming after the old West was basically the frontier was closed and they were going to have to adapt or die. And, mm-hmm. you know, spoiler alert, they die because they're, they die. That. you know, so just so you know, uh, Butch Cassidy, the Sundance kid, they die. Um, if you don't of, need to watch that, go watch Joe dirt. Uh. <laughs> this. So what I'm trying to say is that it doesn't have that kind of self important, you know, you need to pay attention to the message in this because it's still mostly comedy, entertainment, a little bit of action. It's also basic introduction to, you know, how to overcome certain obstacles like motion detectors. The one thing that, uh, hopefully it's a funny story, but you get to be the editor, you decide <laughs> that I, uh, when I was working for this pool hall back right before I got into graduate school, um, this guy had you know, tons and tons of alcohol and it was in a room with a motion detector and I had, I would try to see if I could like not be detected and the motion detector worked and worked and worked and worked, you know, every time it could tell that I was in the room kind of a thing. And then in sneakers, they know that, well, it's based on body heat kind of a thing. And if we raise the temperature of the room to match Robert Redford's body heat, then it won't be able to tell that there's a warm person in the room so that potentially he can steal this uh, device back from Ben Kingsley. And I was like, oh, that's how you do it. <laughs> All yeah. I had to do was raise the temperature of the uh, room where the liquor was to 98.6. Again, I, w- I, I now realize it sounds like I was trying to steal liquor, which I was not. <laughs> <laughs> you know... And I'm not that big of a, I mean, I drink, but, but, you know, I don't get drunk anymore. And even then it was like beer because beer was cheap, you know, kind of a thing. But in, in any case, it's like, well, so that's how you do it. You just raise the temperature to 98.6 and that renders the motion detector useless. Got it. Got uh, it. Kind of thing. But I would sit there and go in the room and then like try to move very slowly. And then it seemed to work, seemed to work, seemed to work. Then the light would come on. I was like, damn it. And I don't know. I, I probably didn't waste more than several hours trying to overcome it just by moving very, very slowly. No, that doesn't happen. You're radiating heat, as it turns out, was how they, uh, at least that's how they worked in the 1990s. And anyway, and, and there's, there is a nice payoff at the end uh, where the uh, NSA comes in and offers these guys basically whatever they want in exchange no, no, they, for, don't, they don't offer that uh they, they have to negotiate Redford and his team sort of blackmail them it's like you because at this point at this point redford and his team they've recaptured the black box the black box kingsley hires redford and his team to steal the black box they do that 
Redford gives the black box unknowingly to Ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley puts Redford on the map. So now Redford's like, okay, I need to make a deal with the government. And the government's basically like, we'll make a deal if you can give us the box. Redford right. has to go find the box, which they do, they and and get the box, yeah. the hacking box. So now Redford has the hacking box, and he's blackmailing uh, NSA. NSA. Headed. And, and James Earl Jones plays the head of the NSA. Yes. Just in case you weren't already blown away with Kingsley and Redford and Poitier and, and River Phoenix and, and Dan Aykroyd and everything. Here, of all things, here comes James Earl Jones in for the fight, you know, the last scene effectively of the last scene so, of the movie. At this point, they start blackmailing James Earl Jones. It's like, we want all of this yes. and we'll give you the box. Right. Redford wants his name cleared. You know, so that the Ackroyd wants a, a Winnebago. River yeah. Phoenix just wants the phone number of one of the female agents there. Yeah, uh. <laughs> and that was something I wanted to address as well when I was, you know, going to bed last night thinking about this just in the back of my mind. Is that I wonder if you could do that still? I mean, you might. It's innocent enough that we're that there's only like, as far as I can remember, there's two women in sneakers. Uh, and the one who, uh, uh, lady who plays the president's wife in Independence Day is basically they kind of use her as bait. Mary to, McDonald. Yeah, yeah. Mary to, McDonald. Yeah, to get this to to get this guy to accidentally give up some information that would allow them to get into the building, uh, uh, kind of thing. And the other one is the female um, NSA agent or whoever she is. And, you know, so they used the one to kind of bait the guy on this romantic blind date, computer date thing. And the other one, River Phoenix, you know, hits her up for her phone number. <laughs> and uh, I don't think you could, and again, I, it doesn't ruin the movie or nothing. And again, it's pretty innocent, but I think today you would have to have and should have a little bit stronger female roles than that, ideally. If you were to, like, reboot Sneakers, you've got to have the women involved as more than just sexual lures for men. Now, I'll agree with that. However, I I will say that I thought Mary McDonald, I want to say McDonald, and it's not McDonald, it's Mary McDonald, right. held, held her own in this boys' club. I oh, thought... Oh, yes. I thought she did a fantastic job. I loved her character. I loved the way she interacted with all the guys. Uh, she held her own with with everybody. Oh, um, no, I, so hats I, I, off to Mary McDowell. Yeah, no, no. I, I've loved her and everything she did. She was even, uh, well, something you definitely couldn't get away with in uh, Dances with Wolves. She played the Indian wife, uh, Native American wife of the chief that Kevin Cosner be friends, you know, and, but she's, she's great in everything she does. I always liked her, had a crush on her, uh, and everything, but, and, and she does hold her own with the guys, but, and she's the one who convinces Robert Redford to go see the lecture of this brilliant mathematician guy that she knows, which kind of, uh, alerts them 
that this kind of stuff is going on. So she she does play a, a central role, but you know at the same time she's she's kind of used as a, as as a bit of a sexual lure, uh, a little bit. And I and yeah, I'm not no, saying they should. I, I understand that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not uh, saying that, that they shouldn't have done it. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that I think today you'd have to have a, a little more stronger, maybe a couple more uh, women involved in the. Uh, in, well, honestly, because you're right. Besides Mary McDonald, we have the the female agent, and then we have the woman who plays Sidney Poitier's wife and daughter. And then all the other women in the movie are just extras or arm candy oh, for the yeah, male the characters. The they're, they're just playing yeah. roles that are typically held by women kind of a thing. That there's not yes. a uh, – Mary McDonald plays a, a strong woman, and that's great. And in 1992, it was fine. And and even today, it would be fine. But there would be people thinking, well, you know, maybe one of the crew could have been a woman <laughs> kind of a thing. Yes, uh, definitely one of the crew – definitely nowadays – one of the crew would either be a woman or a transgender. Yeah, absolutely. Or, yeah, yeah, and, I, and, 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 and they I, would make a, they would make a, okay, so this is, uh, this is my tangent. Yes, yeah, sure. In this podcast. Go right ahead. There was, there's a new Nash Bridges uh, TV movie out, uh, Don Johnson, uh, Cheech Barrett. I don't know if you remember the Nash Bridges TV show. Oh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Very much so. There's a new movie out, and one of the characters in the movie is a transgender police officer. Right. It's just so ham-fisted the yes. way they like. So Don Johnson's driving with her, and he's like, wow, you're the first transgender cop in the precinct. How are they treating you as a transgender cop? Are you getting along being a transgender cop? It was just like, <laughs> good God. This, <laughs> it was just so ham-fisted that they were driving home that this individual is a transgender cop. I love the fact that a transgender cop is, is working, but it's... They really want to it's, beat you over they the really, It's like, we are progressive. This is a transgender yeah. cop. And not only that, but in the... 80s, we had a Latino playing a, a police officer. So yeah. we've come a long way, baby. The Latino wasn't just the drug dealer like he was on Miami Vice. No. And, uh, you know, that we actually, <laughs> yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, this is stuff we talked about b before as well, where, I, I mean, they call it value signaling, I guess, which in some ways, it like when you say, oh, you're a transgender cop, how's it going, blah, blah, blah. And that Don Johnson just accepts him that way, kind of thing, rather than yeah. being like, uh, okay, yeah, you know, kind of a thing, uh, which would be a little bit more realistic at first for, especially people in those positions. They don't tend to be like, you know, <laughs> the most forward-thinking people. So what did you think of Ben Kingsley as the bad guy? First of all, what did you think of Ben Kingsley and his sweet ponytail? <laughs> Because in this movie, Ben Kingsley yeah. is sporting uh, a slick back, obviously a toupee because Ben Kingsley is bald in real life, but it's a toupee slick back into a ponytail. I have a personal preference for my heroes to kind of underplay it. Uh, my my anti-hero, my, my villains, I'm sorry, my villains, 
to to kind of underplay a little bit that Ben Kingsley, he's not like foaming at the mouth, mad crazy kind of a guy that you could just kind of see there is this rage that's kind of simmering underneath him and driving him. Uh, and so uh, I so he he doesn't try to be over the top crazy kind of a thing. He's just kind of very direct. And when he discovers that there is, let's just say, a spy amongst his uh, people, he doesn't like get mad and throw shit around and, you know, go nuts and grab a gun and shoot somebody in the chest 12 times, you know, kind of a thing. He just like he, he seems to me like a guy who's just has this ongoing rage uh, who is just barely in control of themselves. Stop shooting. Marty. I know you are in the building and I know you can hear me. God. You should not have come back, Marty. I wanted you lost. And if our friendship had meant anything to you at all, that's the way you should have left it. But you always had to be the one to win, didn't you? You were the one who got away with things while I never did. You always had to get the girl. Didn't you? So I never did. At least not until now. She's lovely, Marty. Please. Marty, please bring me the box. You must go. They will never let either of you live if you try to get out. I am your way out. I'm your only way out. If I wanted you dead, you would be dead. Marty. I cannot kill you. I cannot kill you. Uh, and so I, I, I like that in my villains, kind of like, you know, Hans in uh, Die Hard, you know, that <laughs> he's not playing an over-the-top, crazy, Al Pacino, Scarface kind of guy. You know, he's just kind of, he's the guy that's not going to get too upset if one of his guys dies. He's the guy who appeals to calm, you know, and don't worry about this. I've got this covered uh, kind of a thing, which is why it's such a memorable character. If, you know, he found out that Bruce Willis had like fucked up something and then he just like destroyed the office that he was in or went out and shot a hostage or whatever because he was pissed off, then I don't think we'd remember the movie and his role in it the same way. Right, because ha- because Hans and Die Hard does kill a hostage, but it's strategically. Yes, it is. It, it's it's extremely, a str- it's a strategic kill it's off to the side. It, 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 well, and it's also a little more terrifying in that he just calmly and coldly just sits there and well, he he shoots he shoots two people because he shoots yeah. the uh, and and I see that now with your uh, poster in the background, but oh, uh, yeah. yeah, he he shoots the uh, head of the corporation. 
uh, and then he shoots, you know, Hans, booby, I'm your man, you know, the kind of guy, the, the, the guy who thought he could close the deal here. Ellis. Ellis, that's right. That I like my villains to be like that, like Goldfinger, you know, that, that he's not just freaking pulling his hair out uh, insane. He's just kind of, he's, he's obviously off, <laughs> but he's, you can see why he's the guy that's in charge. Now, one of Ben Kingsley's lackeys, for better word, is yeah. Timothy Busfield. Yes. Who's, he, he usually plays nice guy roles. Yes, he does. And in this one, he plays the sleazy guy. It's like overly nice. Guy. Hey, uh, you know, hey, it's me. So it's a, it, he's like, he's really fake and he's really phony. I thought that was a nice role for him because he's usually the nice guy. And in here he plays, exactly. basically plays a bad guy. He plays a sleazy bad guy. Yeah, he started Because he has another partner who, and I don't know his name. But he's an older guy, and he's just basically just cranky old white guy, right? And and, and he played the mother of the uh, ugly baseball player in a league of their own, you know. And, and so he's a great actor, and he's great in this. Again, the cast is just so outstanding. <laughs> you see people throughout this thing that you see in tons of stuff before, and tons of stuff after. But yeah, he he was playing against type, so you go in thinking maybe he's actually going to be who he says he is, that you don't know that he is, in fact, a bad guy. That was something I tried to emphasize with my uh, classes when uh, we would uh, cover, when appropriate, I wouldn't just bring it up out of out of nowhere, but like covering World War II and stuff, I would show Casablanca and talk about the symbolism in that movie with the war that was made while the war was going on. And I said, at this point in time, most of the news coming about about the war was bad news, and we still weren't sure we were going to win that. And on top of that, Humphrey Bogart usually played the heavy. You know, he usually, he that starts to change in the 40s. Was the Maltese Falcon before or after this? Maltese Falcon was before. So this, but, you're right. So this was his slide into the the biggest role because he played gangsters who were bad guys, and he was the bad guy in Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And so you would see him in a couple of roles where he was the good guy, but for the most part, he played kind of this film noir kind of bad guy. And even when he's a good guy, like in the Maltese Falcon, he's also kind of a bad guy at the same time. Right. But in any case, so there's a chance. <laughs> that Rick might just take off with Ingrid Bergman. That if you're the audience member seeing that movie, you think that there's a chance that Rick is just just basically going to sell out and the two of them are going to go off and live happily ever after. Because that's how practically every mainstream Hollywood movie was, you know, whenever there was a, a romance involved. And so when it turns out that and again, spoiler alert, Humphrey Bogart's the good guy in Casablanca. <laughs> that he doesn't, that he effectively puts the war over his own personal interests, something that tens of millions of Americans had also done at that time when they were sitting there in that theater. That's why it hits, and that's why it stays. This is something I, I saw in the movie, which I don't know, maybe it's, I'm thinking, but Timothy Busfield, when he's in character playing the good guy, his hair is sort of quaffed. <laughs> but when it's revealed that 
he's a bad guy, his hair goes to being slicked back. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know if that was a conscious, like he was putting on a, it's like, I can't be a good guy if my hair's slicked back. So it's, it's nice and quaffed when he's supposed to be a good guy. Then it's revealed he's a bad guy. He goes back to the slick back hair. Uh, that's an extremely interesting observation. It's a little bit like, you know, another movie tome is you want to let the audience know that this guy is a bad guy. Put facial hair on him. Not just yes. the mustache. Mustache, he's still okay. Mustache, he's still Burt Reynolds. He's uh, Sam Elliott. Mustache, he's fine. He's Charlie Chaplin. You know, <laughs> but you put full facial hair on him, and he's the evil Kirk or the evil Spock. You know, yes. that he's he's the uh, he's the the bad guy. Uh, you don't see you don't see honestly you don't see too many good guys with a goatee with a Van Dyke. This um, is true. And and maybe that's the problem, Scott. <laughs> maybe that's it. Maybe you just you need to go like either full beard or no beard at all. You know, just that that maybe maybe the gals would respond to that. You know, maybe. <laughs> now uh, we have uh, we have David Strath Strathen. Jeez, Strather, uh, the guy who played the blind guy. Yes. How did you think? How do you think his blind man acting was? Yeah. Say compared it, to, I guess the to me the most famous blind guy acting is Pacino in Scent of a Woman. Yeah, I, I did. He, think, did he pull off blind to you? Uh, I I thought that was really kind of a little bit weak, kind of a thing. I mean, you know, the premise of, you know, well, we we got a guy who you know has what everybody except blind people consider to be a disability kind of thing, but he compensates by having this super hearing and being able to think that a room full of people talking and geese sound like the same thing uh, kind of thing. <coughs> I, I'm not so sure. I, I was going to mention a couple of awkward moments that didn't work for me in the movie. And yeah, I think go ahead. Him, I think him playing the blind guy was kind of, Again, it plays into the, the the trope of the 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 blind person is now Superman in terms of his hearing abilities, uh, kind of a thing. If if you're deficient in one area, and again, deficient is a term that blind people would uh, disagree with. But in any case, if you don't can't see, suddenly it, your hearing gets better. It's never, by the way, taste. It, you yeah. know, when, when when there's a blind person in the movies. They can hear fantastically, like whether it's Daredevil or whatever. The other sense that isn't enhanced, it's never like taste and smell kind of a thing. The only time they addressed that was uh, in that SNL sketch uh, with, oh, God, I can't remember the guy with a mustache. He, he played a blind guy, and she said, well, but, you know, and he talked about how terrible it is to be blind. But your other senses, they're enhanced, right? Oh, yeah, smell. That's a thats a nice one to have enhanced. Uh, being yeah. on the subway or when the dog comes in wet from the rain. Yeah, that's thats nice to have that one. <laughs> but it's never like, you never see like Daredevil or some blind guy go to some restaurant and go, excuse me. But uh, you obviously use a soy product on this uh, grilled cheese sandwich when it says specifically that you were to use butter on this that my because i am blind i have an enhanced palate 
and can tell that, you know, this uh, cheese came from a cow that was raised not on grass, but on corn, you know, kind of a thing. It's never that one that's in that. So I thought that was just a little bit clunky. Uh, the other one is where uh, the gal is trying to get uh, the uh, worker guy, who again is a, uh, who plays Ned Ryerson, doesn't yeah. he? In, in Groundhog Day, to say the word passport. And that whole conversation is just so awkward. And I want, you know what word I find sexy? Passport. You know, because to get into the system, you had to say that my word is my passport, voice recognition, which was rare, very cutting edge back then. We didn't have Alexa in 1992, but, you know, Alexa was on her way. Um, that I thought that conversation, that there, there were smarter ways of getting somebody to say the word passport than right. saying, oh, I find it sexy. Say the word passport. It's like, really? The word passport? You think it's sexy? You know, because that was one of and, the words she had. And you're telling me that's not going to be a red, a giant red flag to somebody. Yeah. Passport. I like to tra- I like to travel abroad. Uh, do you have? Um, oh, I'm so, a pass passport. You know exactly. Or do you need a passport to go to Hawaii? Yeah. <laughs> Which it, apparently that Rob Mungle was waiting in like line at the driver's license office somewhere and a few years ago and he posted about this on Facebook, how somebody they were discussing whether they needed a passport to go to Hawaii. And Rob told yeah. them, no, it's a state. You don't need a passport to go to Hawaii. Yeah. It's part of the United States, you know, kind of a thing. But yeah, there's a, a lot more. That scene really was awkward for me that there, like you said, um, there's smarter ways of getting him to say passport. Yeah. And, than just say the word passport because I think it's a sexy word. And you might get to sleep with me tonight if you say the word passport and get me turned on, you know, kind of a thing. And it's like, uh, really, guys? You know, it's like, oh, gosh, my passport is expired. Do you have a passport? You know, I'm like, <laughs> Italy's, what, have you been overseas? Is your, you know, that kind of a thing. And at some point, he's probably going to just say the word passport kind of thing. So I thought that was a little clunky. And I thought the 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 blind guy was a little clunky uh, at times, but it is it is interesting to note they did have a contribution from each of these team members. You know that they all made a unique contribution to them coming together at the end, and it's a happy ending. But one thing I, I don't want to spoil it because we've already is... spoiled we've already spoiled Casablanca. Cat, we've yeah, we spoiled Butch <laughs> Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah, you know, these fifty-year-old movies. More endings. There's a scene where Dan Aykroyd and Sidney Poitier uh, get captured. Yes, by these guards, and and just out of nowhere, one of the guards says to Sidney, "Stay right there, midnight." It's like, oh, yeah. so, okay. It it just seemed odd that that race, you know, that racial slur, right? What was there? I mean. It doesn't add anything to the movie. We already, it doesn't we already add anything like to the movie. Guys. Yeah, we already don't like the guys. The guy, because uh, then we get that scene, what you said, and we get the only, uh, we get the only fuck in the movie. And it comes from Sidney Poitier, and it's great hearing Sidney Poitier say motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, he takes that. You don't want to know why I was kicked out of the CIA? My temper. And he, he disarms the two guys and he cocks the gun. And he's like, yeah, yeah, take that, you know, take that motherfucker. Did I ever tell you why I had to leave the CIA? No. Uh, what's reverse? Uh, one down. My temper. <laughs> Motherfuckers mess with me, I'll split your head. Ah, uh, Chris. Where's Whistler going? So the blind guy has to drive the truck. Yes. Through through a through a series of unfortunate accidents, incidents. Yeah. The blind guy has to drive the truck. So Robert Redford is being his eyes. Yeah. So he's telling him, you know, turn left, turn right. He's driving over, you know, he's driving over yeah. embankments. He's driving over medians. He's driving through cars. He hits a brick wall and he's not wearing a seatbelt. And he, I don't know. He's going. He's not going incredibly fast, but he's going fast enough. He's going fast enough where if he if he hit that wall, it was like he just hits that wall. And just, he just does this little jolt and goes, I think I'll stop here. It's like that would cause. Yeah. I, I think that would throw his head into the windshield. That that was a, a and like I said, it's a little thing. No, under understood. Yeah, the blind guy driving is the blind guy driving is fine. Once again, another comparison to Scent of a Woman. And in the I didn't mind that. Yes. And I thought the banter between Redford and him was great. He's like, turn left. No, my left. You're you're right. And uh, that's. <laughs> Yeah, and again, uh, it's, it's, you just have to accept it is is the fact that it, it's again it, it's a comedy comedy adventure kind of a thing. It's and that's the thing. I, I mean, I don't know how to how else to categorize it. It's not action adventure like Indiana Jones would be. It's not certainly not drama. There's dramatic moments and there's a a theme to it that is dramatic and important. It, it's not an out and out comedy either it's uh there's a lot of talking in this movie but i was never bored i was never bored so that proves that that's good writing right there because most of it is dialogue driven stuff Uh, and i was never bored i was always i was always enhanced so that's that's great writing and that's great character development yeah the movie moves it absolutely you know moves through it very clearly i also like the fact that there is like a bit of a romance implied with robert redford uh and the lead well, so but it's not so over. robert redford and mary they are exes i don't know if they were married right. but they were they were together at one point but they're still and friends. they're still friends and there and might I think, still be a little attraction going on there but but they don't just throw in a romance just to throw in a romance to get the female demographic to show up to the to the theaters mm-hmm you know, so to speak. And that's, and that's, it would be interesting to get a female perspective on the movie because this to me is like a guy's movie, a guy's guy's oh, movie. Oh, this is definitely, well, Mary McDonald, McDonald says that during the movie. He goes, yeah, this is a, you're, you're, this is a boys club. She says right. that during the movie, basically yeah, today, stating that. Today they'd call it a sausage fest. Yeah. But uh, back then, boys club meant the same thing. And had a 
nicer connotation actually. But uh, in any case, yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely a, a guy's movie, and it would be interesting to get the perspective of a female to see this and to see how she would <laughs> actually. Oh, maybe it'll be like Ghostbusters. Maybe they'll have to do a female version of Sneakers, like they did a female <laughs> version of Ocean's Eleven. And, and well, there's another a uh, female. It's uh, three fifty five. It looks like it's an all woman uh, spy movie. So that okay to me. To yeah, me, that's an, it, it. Looks like another remake of Ocean's Eleven. And that's fine. And that's wonderful. You know, because they were they were just kind of used as side characters, and they would have leads. But you know, but the lead had to be you know, use her feminine wiles to survive like Scarlett O'Hara. And now we've brought in Gone with the Wind. Now, yes. Now, even though this is an ensemble, an ensemble, a great cast. Yes. This is Robert Redford's movie. He is, I believe, he's in every scene. I, I, I think yeah, he's I in every scene of the movie. He's in every scene uh, except for the one where Sidney Poitier kicks ass. Right. And he's not on the date. But he is, he's in 95% of this movie. So even though it's a great ensemble cast, make no doubt about it, this is a Robert Redford movie. And just to prove how great Robert, Robert Redford carries this movie with this fantastic supporting, uh, supporting cast. The, Uh, ironically, the only other, I thought about this as well, the only other guy who I could see carrying it off of all people would maybe be Paul Newman. And, and that brings up another, another tangent, which is just a, a crying shame. You know how many movies Robert Redford and Paul Newman made together? Two. 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 <laughs> I mean, that's something that everybody who was alive in Hollywood at the time should just be bitch slapped for. <laughs> how do you get these two guys who alone have such charisma? just explode on the screen are so good. And then you put them together and you have Butch Cassidy, classic. You have the sting and then nothing else. Nothing. The sting was 1974. You couldn't. Yeah, exactly. That's the last time they're both a lot. You know, Robert Redford is still with us. Newman was around for a very, very long time. He's, he's around long enough to get shot and killed, you know, by Tom Hanks. You know, and now we've brought in another one. So, you know, I yeah, think road to road to perdition. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So, uh, so Newman, I could see him care being able to pull off that role. Uh, but yeah, Ro- it's yeah not too many people could, but Redford does. Redford yes, pulls does. off carrying this movie with a, with an A plus supporting cast. Absolutely, yeah, and and like I said, it, it was uh, not a big hit at the box office and. Why, what I think is enduring about it is because it was, it just came a little before its time when, when people didn't yet quite realize how important hacking and counter hacking was going to become, you, you know, uh, to their lives. This movie gives me more respect for Sidney Poitier because all these actors, I believe, had star vehicles for themselves. Right. But Sidney Poitier at that point was an Academy Award winner. He starred in films. He directed films. He was good enough, humble enough, however you want to phrase it, 
I'll take a supporting role yes. in this movie because yeah. I can see how good this movie is and I can see how good this character is. So there was no ego in it. It's just like Redford can be above the title and I'll, you know, my, and everybody else, I'm almost second to last. It's just because they did it in alphabetical well, order after Robert with, Redford. With, you know, to, to get back to where we began, you know, since we're, we're probably just about have this taken care of is when I bought that laser disc without ever having seen the movie, I'd heard of it and I heard good things about it. But when I saw that city Portier was in it, it was, that's what sold me on it. It's like, this guy doesn't make bad shit. And here he is. And he's a co-star. Yeah. He's not the lead vehicle. So, and maybe that's the other part talked about not strong enough roles for women. You know, it, it's maybe commentary on the fact that in 1992, maybe you couldn't have Sidney Portier play Robert Redford's role. You know, that's, that may, yes, that 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 you, that Sidney Portier certainly could have could pull it off. We I talk about Newman pull it off. So, so could any great actor. Portier could pull it off. Meryl Streep could pull it off. Uh, but uh, but I give extra credit to Sidney Portier, but to all yes. the actors who took a supporting role in this movie. Yeah, I mean Portier's. I, I mean, and again, not to to put down Dan. I don't want to. I don't want to downgrade all the other all the other actors exactly, in here. Right. Fantastic. I don't want to downgrade already, any of them. It, already in 1992, he was a cut above everybody else who's a co-star in this movie. Let's put it that yes. way, without putting them down. Nothing bad about those other guys. They're all fantastic. And, and River Phoenix would die very shortly after this movie. Well, River Phoenix and Sidney Poitier were in a movie together called Little Nikita, I believe. Yeah, maybe we'll have to talk about this on it. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> but, but the premise of this was that we were supposed to be talking about Sidney Poitier since since he just passed. And and it's just for uh, Poitier fans that are going back and reviewing his work, that if you want to see something that's a little more light, it's a little more candy, you know, there's some serious scenes involved in it but you don't have to get like so emotionally involved in it like the heat of the night or lilies of the field kind of a thing it's just it, it's a lighter role and i i mean even you know guess who's coming to dinner yeah it, it's a comedy and stuff but there's really important stuff going on there mm-hmm. and deep thinking stuff and and you know that that here's the guy who's a nobel prize winning you know super genius person that any woman in the world any any parent any spencer tracy in the world would want his daughter to marry except he's black (laughs) and that's what it takes to become acceptable enough to marry my daughter although to be fair you know spencer tracy's character is not so much that he personally objects it's more like well nobody everybody else is going to react very horribly to what you guys are doing here and you're going to have a very terrible life and terrible things are going to happen to you for both of you. And I'm concerned about both of you for this. I remember a quote from Howard Stern, of all people. Yeah. And he said, I would not want my children to be gay. And he said, not because I have anything against that, but with them being gay, they're going to have so many things against them. And as a parent, I don't want to see my children hurt. And being gay, they're going to have all this stuff that they're going to have to overcome. 
Right. So it's a parental thing. It's like, I want the best for my kids and I don't want to see my children hurt. And if you're, if you're gay or if you're going to, if you're going to marry a black person in the sixties, yeah, you're going to have, you're going to have up Bill Haddle and you're going to have people who are going to want to hurt you. And I don't want to see that as a parent. Right. And it's going to follow you for your whole life. It's never not yes. going to go away. Uh, kind of a thing. And so, so this gives Portier fans something that, that they don't mention this, you know, when they talk about his death and the movies that he made, Sneakers doesn't come up. But it's a nice little flick. It's very entertaining, and it, it doesn't, you know, beat you into submission <laughs> uh, over anything. Uh, like maybe some of his uh, uh, his other movies do. You know, you don't, I mean, you don't sit there and say, hey, you know... I don't want to think too hard. <laughs> I want to be entertained, you know, but, but I, I don't want it. I don't want something stupid. I don't want, you know, the movie version of three's company, you know, to, to, to watch that or something, you know, I want to, yeah, then sneakers is, is the movie for you, you know, in the heat of the night, uh, not so much. <laughs> yeah, you know. So your final opinion. So I take it, you would recommend sneakers to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely give a, a thumbs up. And I would say to folks that if you got access to HBO Max, you got a couple hours to kill, and you want to see a, a really nice ensemble of really top-notch actors thrown together, you, you know, just, just the ensemble cast. I mean, what else are you going to see Ben Kingsley, Sidney Poitier, and Robert Redford in? Well, at the end, that's with uh, James Earl Jones and Sidney Poitier going back and forth. I really enjoyed that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, yeah. The, that he wants a trip to Tahiti. That is, it's funny. It's like my wife and I have never been to Tahiti. Well, that's too bad. You know, we would like to go to Tahiti. Now the box. <clears throat> uh, I have never taken my wife to Europe. I'm sorry to hear it. Give me the box. You will buy me two round-trip first-class tickets to Athens, Lisbon, Madrid, and Scotland. Don't, don't forget Tahiti. And Tahiti. Tahiti is not in Europe. Excuse me. When you get the box, then you give us geography lessons. Until then, this man goes to Tahiti. Fine. Tahiti. And that's... Interesting to me that uh, Poitier apparently like lived in the Bahamas or was born there. He, he died in the Bahamas, you know, kind of a tropical paradise kind of a thing. Of course, Fijit, uh, Fiji's like that or Tahiti's like that without their hurricanes, by the way. <laughs> now, now, before we go, what is there anything that you want to promote? No, I, I don't. We have more customers than we could possibly use, so I don't want to promote the store or anything. Okay. <laughs> That's why I tell people. I, now, I was going to say one thing I did want to uh, cut in on is that I know you love cheese. Yeah. You're a big cheese guy. I'm a big and, cheese guy. And, yeah, and I thought that, you know, we, we should perhaps bring up or discuss the lack of cheese in the movie. <laughs> that, that there was a dinner scene and that, you know, they could have gotten a cheese plate and they chose not to. And that cheese is perhaps very underrepresented in this movie. Yes, uh, that's why I can't recommend this movie. <laughs> Not this movie, movie. This movie is no Gouda. <laughs> oh, zing. God. All right, well, we're ending this podcast on a cheese pun. 
yes. I want to thank my guest, uh, uh, Tim Howard. Thank you for doing this. And we'll see everybody here next time on the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. Thank you, Scott. Adios. Adios. To support this podcast, please go to www.patreon.com slash Scott White and give what you're able. If you're listening on iTunes, please give a review. That should help people find this podcast. And no matter what services you use to listen, please leave feedback. We always want to improve. Thank you for listening to the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. But the key meeting took place July 1, 1958, when the Air Force brought the space visitor to the White House for an interview with President Eisenhower. And Ike said, hey, look, give us your technology, we'll give you all the cattle you want. So that's honey, what Captain... Honey, don't listen to this man. He's certifiable. Your husband knows about cattle mutilations. He's, he's ex-CIA. touch. He knows the government's been suppressing for years. has been a Cross the Streams Media Podcast. Cattle mutilations are up. Don't. Sorry. <laughs>